0: Hi everyone! I am back with a new episode after a very accidental hiatus that was definitely not supposed to last a year. I've just realised that the last episode I published on marginally finished was a year ago. I recorded the episode you're about to listen to way back in October 2020 and I'm only just publishing it in January 2022. You can blame the PhD pandemic combination for all my plans being tossed out of the window. Just a heads up, this bonus episode isn't like the others on Marginally Fanish, That is, it doesn't explore different aspects of intersectionality in media or fandom. Back in 2020, I chatted with Lata and Shayan for the Convivial Thinking website. The Convivial Thinking Collective features a group of researchers who explore decolonization in academia and scholarship in creative ways. You can find their ideas and work at convivialthinking.org. This episode was originally only going to appear on their website, but there ended up being a bunch of connections between our conversation and the philosophy of this podcast. I began Marginally Fanish as a part of my PhD project because I passionately believe that fandom provides a really valuable space for collaboratively creating knowledge. I also think that it makes room for the kinds of diverse perspectives and experiences which you may not always encounter in formal educational contexts. Alternative forms of knowledge and the importance of dialogue with diverse groups of people is a recurring theme in this episode. So, I decided to share the episode on this feed as well in case this topic interests any other fans out there. If this isn't your kind of thing, please feel free to skip this episode. I'll be back with my regular programming soon, that is if I have not forgotten how this whole podcasting thing works in the first place. You have 5 new episodes and conversations to look forward to, all of which were also recorded in 2020. Hopefully we won't have to wait another year for me to figure out how to edit and publish the next episode. Now, on with the episode. The world we inhabit offers us several different learning opportunities. However, academic structures frequently end up valuing a limited kind of expertise, whose cultures, languages and experiences are considered the default. What kind of knowledge matters? How do you seek alternative communities of knowledge beyond the restrictions of the structure you work in? Collaboratively engaging with knowledge and activism, with a wide range of people, both within and outside institutionalized academic spaces is crucial. Academics have the responsibility to make academic knowledge and theories more accessible and relevant to non-academic contexts. Going even further, academics can work with non-academics to create spaces which explore alternative expressions of knowledge and different approaches to knowledge building. Conversations with diverse groups of people can challenge limited notions of one-way education and academic expertise by moving towards a more inclusive pedagogy. Encountering each other's diverse, sometimes conflicting experiences and perspectives in unconventional contexts can help us unlearn our colonized mindsets and discover what we don't know. Both uncertainty and discomfort hold radically liberating possibilities when it comes to building knowledge, especially when combined with a sincere curiosity to learn from the world. Find our conversations about all this and more in today's episode. My name is Parinita Shetty and in this episode, I speak with Dr. Lata Narayan Swami and Dr. Shayan Day about unconventional ways of learning and new communities of knowledge and culture. Both Lata and Shayan are part of the Convivial Thinking Collective, thanks to which we are exploring critical, collaborative, and creative forms of decolonization in our conversation today. Since 2001, Dr. Narayan Swami has worked as a research practitioner, consultant, most recently Lecturer in International Development in the School of Politics and International Studies at the University of Leeds. Her research critically reflects on gendered-intersectional and post-decolonial dynamics of development knowledge and its perceived contribution to global development challenges. She is currently involved in applied interdisciplinary research related to climate change, water security, and decolonizing development. Shayan De grew up in Kolkata, West Bengal. He completed his studies from Banaras Hindu University, Varanasi, and is currently working as lecturer at the Yonfula Centenary College, Royal University of Bhutan. He is also the Senior Advisor of Quality Education Group, Centre for Regional Research and Sustainability Studies, India. I am a third-year doctoral researcher in the School of Education at the University of Leeds. I am really interested in exploring how fan podcasts, especially those featuring people from marginalized groups, use the framework of their favorite media texts to share their diverse perspectives and experiences. I am also passionate about using digital media to make academic research accessible to non-academic audiences as well as to include a diverse range of non-academic voices in academic spaces. Hello, it's really nice to talk to people who are not just me and my boyfriend and my cat. (laughs) It's nice to see other faces. But yeah, I'm just going to start off because we have a lot to talk about. So just in terms of um, unconventional engagements with knowledge as well as culture in spaces that are beyond educational spaces or institutional spaces. Well, I do a bit of that in my project, but I was really interested in how you have dealt with that
1: in your own work or otherwise. So first, thank you for um, inviting me into your podcast world. It's very nice <laughs> to be here. Yeah, it's, it's difficult because I think it's the kind of thing that, well, as academics, we don't do enough of First, art. I think we do tend to think about academic spaces in very narrow ways. Where and how we learn is conceptualized in very narrow ways, right? So you're, I don't know, you're in a classroom or you're in a building, you have to go somewhere. I suppose the most immediately obvious counterpoint in my own life has been just having children and sort of thinking about learning in a much more dynamic way and trying to instill in them that there's never an opportunity not to learn from something that's happening around you or something that you might observe or something that you might see on the news or hear on the radio or an interaction you might have with a friend. So, you know, you can talk about issues or interesting things or relevant things or, or share lessons about the world on the walk to school or, you know, picnic in the park. But I think in terms of even more formal kinds of spaces that we might create, I suppose the other, it's not formal, but another opportunity was, say, during an election, right? So I would, you know, you say you go along for a political party and you're, and you're door knocking. And I, you know, I did that in the last election in the UK and less said about that, the better in terms of the outcome but certainly in thinking about what it might mean to actually knock on somebody's door and have a conversation about the things that matter to them and then finding that common ground and seeing that as kind of integral to, you know, shared learning or co-production and also, you know, enriching myself. I don't mean that in a selfish way, but I think it's about approaching learning and academia as as a two-way street and I think there is a tendency in lots of educational contexts to see education as a kind of one-way street but I think in academia we're particularly bad in higher education where there is a sort of framing of expertise you know I'm the person that knows stuff and I'm going to impart to you all this wisdom that I have and I'm very keen that we turn that on its head. I do think that's possible within the classroom, and we can have more, um, you know, dynamic and inclusive pedagogical approaches. But I really think it's about trying to think through how we can not only create but also seek out those opportunities to have conversations in more diverse contexts and with more, with a with a greater diversity of people. Mm-hmm. I think we have a kind of, I think as academics, we have a responsibility to do that, if I'm honest. And I don't know that we have the tools or the language to do it, but it would be something that I'd want for us to be exploring more collectively. You know, and even you and I sort of, you know, being on a picket line. I mean, that's an opportunity to have a conversation, not just about your cat or your breakfast, although we can have <laughs> that conversation too. But, you know, how, 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 do we, how do we expand our educational engagements? And who do we bring into that space with us? How do we learn from it? They're different questions. I don't think we ask those questions enough in academia.
0: Absolutely.
2: Well, I mean, just to, uh, I think, continue with where Lata just stopped. I think this uh, we often talk about, as um, Lata also mentioned categorically, that to balance the academic and the non-academic spaces, we talk about activism within and outside the academia. It's easy to talk. It's, it's easy to talk. It's interesting to talk. It's nice to quote theorists and, you know, show off how much we have read. But when it goes into the question of application, we see a whole lot of challenges. Personally, I think that this, this process of uh, engaging within and beyond the academia at the same time is not an I thing. It's a, it's a very we thing. I mean, alone, I can't do anything. Alone, I I can sit and talk a lot, but if I have to do something alone, I can't do anything. I mean, obviously, I mean, with respect to the things that we were talking about just a few moments back before the recording started, I and you, Parinita, we were talking and you just, you, you, you were just sharing that, how did you meet Lata? I mean, and then how did you take up your conversation? And that was a collective space. That, that was the collective space where you met, you started engaging. And I think that engagement was not just an engagement of hello and hi, but it was, it was that moment where you were creating, you were, you were altogether weaving new dimensions of intellectual ideas outside the restricted academic space. Now, personally, coming back to our personal engagements of everyday decoloniality, which I usually engage with a lot of people, uh, with respect to podcasts, with respect to interactions, with respect to writings and readings and engaging, and also Lata is an integral part of that. With respect to that, what I try to do is I try to understand as an individual, in relation to others, I try to understand that how can I engage with decolonial practices in everyday life. Now, let me give you like very, very basic examples. So, for instance, I have a problem in using spoon and fork while eating. And that problem is like, I, I have a physical problem. It's not an ideological problem. So basically I'm not very comfortable to be very honest and blunt. Now, I have seen people, if someone is having a, a bread and a cup of tea in a roadside restaurant in India, that person is not really concerned whether he is eating with one hand or two hands altogether. But if that same person goes to a five-star restaurant, that person is extremely concerned, that person is extremely aware that why, and he's, he's trying to use this tea and fork thing, you know, when he's not going to do the same thing in a roadside restaurant. But for me, I, I find it's quite problematic. This, this practice is quite problematic. It's a, it's a cultural problem. It's a social problem. It's a racial problem. It has its roots in the colonial ethics and morals that we still follow consciously or unconsciously. So wherever I go, in whatever comfort ways I feel like eating, whether it's a roadside open shop or it's a five-star restaurant, I'm going to use my hands. And I really don't care if people are shrugging, they're snigging, because that's not my problem. I've gone to save the food and I like the food and I will just come back. It's as simple as that. And I pay money for that, so I'm not stealing. So that's perfectly fine. So from all respect, I am safe there. So this is one such example. The the second thing I can tell you is, with respect to the concept of body languages, for instance, in Indian schools, we have this very, I don't, don't know if it is there in the UK and all, this very tendency, if you go to the English medium schools in general, I'm pretty sure Parvinta also has that experience. But you will see when people or the teachers teaches English, they have this tendency of imposing the typical UK styled English mm-hmm. or the US styled English on the students. Let me give you another very basic example. If suppose in a parents teachers meeting a parents ask the teacher that my I, I want to see my kid improving spoken English. What should I do? So the teacher will always say you that usually, not always, they will say you that, okay, ask them to watch a BBC, ask them to watch a CNBC, ask them to watch a star movies, ask them to watch an ESPN. I mean, there are English speaking channels in India as well. You have English speaking news channels. Sensible news channels are there as well, along with several nonsensical news channels. But there are are places where people can learn. But so why by default, consciously or unconsciously, we have to make a consistent reference to... Western dimensions, Western parameters. So I think these process of questioning through action, not questioning, just as questioning, questioning through action, living as examples within and outside the academic space, because these examples cannot be set everything within the academic space. Obviously we need to discuss, we need to theorize, we need to problematize, we need to unsettle, but also we need to continue it beyond the academic space through making it as a part of practice of our daily existence, individually as well as collectively. And this is how I try to do. And these are some of the things I would like to share. That's it.
0: I totally connect with what both of you are saying. And just for me, I have grown up Uh, in Bombay and I went to one of those English medium schools, a Catholic school actually because there also the imposition of English in India at least when I was growing up was the nuns teach you better English so send uh, you know as a part of social mobility that's where you go to learn better English and because I've grown up in India and because most of the stuff that I grew up reading was British children's literature or American children's literature and then American media for me it was this colonized mindset that I'm still trying to unlearn that English is better than other languages. And because you grow up with the space that nobody's disrupting that thinking and nobody's really questioning that everyone because that's the world that you live in as well, right? Like if you don't have any social or financial capital or you know, any sort of uh, help there, you are reliant on employers who might then look at your English and decide that if you don't speak good English, you're not as intelligent as someone who speaks English. And for me, the framework of learning to think and unlearn and, you know, the social conditioning has largely been online, honestly, and specifically through fandom. Like the school that I went to, they didn't teach you to think critically at all. They just taught you what to think. And that's what you, you know, sort of write in your exam papers and you don't understand the context or you don't understand to question, like no questioning at all. Questioning is not allowed. And it's through fandom that even though like I was in Mumbai, which is a fairly big city, you still have a small social bubble. So you still have mostly people who are like you. And it's only through fandom like Harry Potter fandom is where it started. And because it's such a globally popular text, the fans came from a wide range of backgrounds. And that's where I learned things about like things like decolonization and queerness. And, you know, just all like recently because of J.K. Rowling's transphobia, there's been more talk about that. And that's a whole education in itself, especially where, because you're both marginalized and privileged in this space, as someone who's grown up in India, you think fandom and everything happens in the West, and then you see that, oh, there are other people like you. But anyway, like, for me, fan podcasts more recently have been such a fantastic way to learn and unlearn things, because more and more people, especially fans who are from marginalized backgrounds, are using the fictional framework, or so are using this language of Harry Potter, or Doctor Who, or Marvel, or whatever, which everybody knows, but then, you know, pushing against that, like, they love these texts, we love these texts, but we are unpacking the things, the more problematic elements of it, which, for me, like, I think that's fantastic, because in academia, I still don't really see... See, myself, I don't really feel quite comfortable in academia because, like, none of my parents went to university and, you know, like, to higher education or a PhD or anything. So I still feel like I'm conning academia in a way that I'm doing, you know, fan studies and intersectionality and podcasts, and I'm like, wait, they're allowing me to do this? And I don't really see, like, me being in academia at all after that, even though I think there would be, there should be room for Like, what you were saying, Lata, about... You know, like, what kind of language and who has expertise and what kind of knowledge matters. I think that should be expanded. But I think academia is still a little uh, hesitant to do that. Like, at least not people within it, but structurally, it is quite reluctant to do these things. Like, just the podcast that I'm doing for my PhD research. Like, you know, my supervisors, everyone was super happy for me to do it as a research method. And they also suggested I present it, present my PhD thesis as a podcast, which they thought makes sense in terms of my, uh, you know, focus on co-creating knowledge and, you know, Mm -hmm. outside the academy and like in online spaces. But then the university itself is not comfortable with that. Like they were like, no, this is... And it's not even like podcasts are this huge like they're not this newfangled technology they've been around for a really long time with the episodes that I've reached so far it's not a huge number but it's much more than if I'd written a journal like article in like traditional academic language and structured traditionally or a PhD thesis would have reached it's not just me saying my expertise it's me trying to learn from other perspectives as well so in my podcast it's a fan podcast and we're aiming an intersectional lens at both fandom and like some of our favorite media. And I've ma- because I tried to recruit co-participants online, it reached a fair amount of people. So I have like people from diverse countries and they all have their own, our own individual social context and political context. So we do bring that in and we learn from each other, which I think is really valuable. But I don't think it's as valued in the university, yeah. unfortunately. Just in terms of then like how you... Try and seek this community, like this community of knowledge elsewhere if it isn't being given space in the structure that you're working in. How do you think you you do that or you can do that or people can do that?
2: Basically, I think one of the basic ways from where we can start and actually from where we are all starting is collaboration. Because collaboration is something that gives always gives us the option to stay within the academia, just within that space, if we feel like, but at the same time to disentangle ourselves from those narrow restricted spaces of this academic system and indulge with people who are working right in the field as activists, performers, scholars, musicians, whatever, or whoever it is, or to stay within and beyond at the same time. That is today now. Nowadays, for example, if we, whenever we have this academic events amongst many institutions, I am seeing and which is actually making me feel very happy and also very optimistic of the transformations. Earlier, there was this notion that a keynote speaker has to be the so-called seasoned academician with a fat CV and a huge number of publications and a massive resume. The bio note will be read for the first fifteen minutes and then the lecture starts. So. You know, these kind of usual categorizations are getting broken. We see activists coming up. We see people who may not be, you know, very well known, so-called very well known in terms of publications and all, but has significant contributions at the ground level towards their respective communities and societies. And they are coming up in that academic stage to share. And that is how... Now, the direction is changing. Earlier, there was this only notion that activism travels from academia to the society and not the other way around. Now, because of this unidirectional dimension, till now what happened, it remained the pattern of control remained in the hands of the academic system. And they have been you know, acting not less than the colonial empire. And they have been regulating it in their own manner and using it for their self-centered needs. But now when it is happening the other way around, it is also dropping a strong message that only not we are, we are ready to learn from you. Thank you so much. We need to learn from you. Also, you also need to learn from us. So this process is not a unidirectional journey. It's an exchange as well. For instance, um, last year, I think it was, yeah, it was University of KwaZulu-Natal uh, in South Africa who started their first decolonial summer school. Now, during the decolonial summer school, obviously, they had lectures from academicians like um, Professor Nelson Mandela, Torres, Ramon Grosford, and several others who came up and delivered lectures. But that was not the end of the story. What they did also, they also invited activists, local activists. They invited local dancers. They invited local musicians. And they were brought to the central academic space to make the people understand that how at the very basic social level, the process of decolonization take place. Because obviously we read a lot of theorists, but when we go to the very ground level, it is impossible for us to exactly interpret or reflect on the theories in those exact terms and languages. We have to do it in a completely different manner so that it is relatable and connective to people as well. So I think... One of the major ways through which we can do it is to build these collaborations, which actually gives us the opportunity that if academic space is not allowing us, it doesn't mean, mean that my all the doors are shut. I have other branches open, other channels open, where I can take out the activism there and channelize it amongst the folks.
0: Yeah, and also, like, based on what you said, I think sometimes academia tends to value theory too much and privilege theory too much without, like, I don't know... Exploring how it is done without using those terms but people are still doing it for like you know intersectionality for example is something that I encountered online for the first time I know it's this scholarship there's this huge history of scholarship and activism in it as well but because the internet there's more this everyday engagement with it and it might not be perfect but that's it's not like scholars are perfect there's always debates happening within the like yeah within journal articles and papers and still, you know, like slamming each other's ideas and theories and stuff. So that's what's happening online. But online, there is nobody, no one person to say this is correct or this is wrong. Like, you'll get into fights and things, but you're still trying to form your own ideas about it. And someone like me who's largely a lurker so you know I don't apart from my podcast now my PhD podcast I don't really create long anything like articles or stuff about this but I'm learning a lot from what other people are saying and when like during my master's there was this lecture about critical literacy and it it was a term that I'd never encountered before so it basically means unpacking uh, the meanings in text and you know all the multiple layers and questioning everything like questioning the what's written questioning social norms political norms and I was like this I haven't learned this myself in school but I have seen fans doing this online but they wouldn't call it critical literacy just Mm. like intersectionality like because I listen to a range of fan podcasts made by you know trans fans gay fans, black fans not Indian fans so much it's largely in the west still but Mm. they are bringing their perspectives into it and into the text that they're analyzing but they're maybe not calling it intersectionality but that's still what they're doing and I think that also needs to be valued or maybe not valued like nobody i guess the fans don't care if academics value them or not really but i think academia is losing out on not seeing these other cultures of knowledge and communities of knowledge
1: i'm just thinking about what you're both saying i think i mean it's just it's fascinating because in some ways i think our responsibility is academics to go back to the point you made about you know how do you create these spaces um, and, and you know what do we do i 'm actually struck by how, in a way, what you 're describing panita is about our responsibility to be Speaking to people about those connections, and I, I and I and I certainly and and, Shai, and everything you've sort of said is very much you know bringing more people into that space, valuing different people, different types of knowledge. You know, let, let's not valorize expertise at the expense of. So I totally that I 100% agree with all of that. I think one of the things that if you want to be, I guess, what you might call an activist academic or somebody who wants to bridge that gap, then we have a responsibility to try to create that bridge in in our engagement so so for instance Benita, what you're describing about oh you know people might be doing critical what did you call it critical literacy critical literacy but actually i think the, the responsibility we have as academics is to is to actually make things like theory accessible i actually think we have a responsibility to do that even in my teaching you know i'll say just you know, i always describe i always describe theories as like oh this is the this is the fancy social science way of describing X, Y, and Z. I don't believe that theory exists separately to the world that we live in. The best theory is absolutely grounded in the world. That's what it's about. It's, a, it's about finding a way of explaining multiple things at the same time. That's all theory is. And if the theory doesn't do what we need it to do, then I need to either make up or find another theory. That for me is very important, but it's almost like having, having a platform and the power so so in a way, it's almost like having a power and wanting to use it for good, right? So if I am given the platform as an academic to speak, then I have a responsibility to not only say things that, that bring people in, but actually to make space for more people. Like I have a responsibility, and I suppose it's not just about being an academic, it's anybody that has power. That power, in my view, best exercise is about actually Making sh- trying to make sure that more people have power, right? It's not about consolidating it and keeping it to myself. Now, obviously I use power very loosely. It's not like I have a huge amount of power as an academic, you know? But in whatever, in whatever way I'm able to, that I think is, is a key responsibility. So Sean, what you're describing is absolutely right. So if, I, if I'm going to put together a conference or if I'm gonna to put together a workshop, then if I'm the organizer, I take on the responsibility of bringing more people into the space and making the argument for why they need to be there. If I have the power to do that, I need to I need to use it. And I see the same thing about then ha- how we engage. So, I've had quite a few opportunities recently. It's been wonderful, you know, obviously the pandemic's a disaster. There's no two ways. You know, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But if there's been one slightly ever so slightly silver lining, it has been that because everybody seems to be moving online it has facilitated my engagement in spaces that I probably wouldn't have had an opportunity to do, whether that's because of work, I don't have time to travel, I've got I've got other responsibilities, so I can only do so many things. I'm at home and I've got my computer, so suddenly I can be involved in all sorts of things. I can be in, in one event in the afternoon and another event in a completely different time zone in the evening. That's actually been a really positive thing. And the result of that has been then, again, to think about How can I use that platform to try to make some of these arguments, but make them accessible, inclusive? How do I bring people into this space and and to make it seem as if it should matter to other people? So even those arguments around decoloniality, the thing that I find deeply frustrating is that, and I also work around gender. So whether it's decoloniality or, or gender, it's like, oh, well. Oh if you're if you're white decoloniality has nothing to do with you. Oh if you're if you're a man or gender has nothing to do with you. And it's about actually pushing back and saying okay, let's have these debates. And my responsibility is is at least partly to say okay, why did these issues or these theories or these activist voices why did they matter to you? actually, how do we bring you into that space in a way that you feel that this becomes your responsibility as well? And if I have any power to affect that kind of change, I, have, I actually think it is also then about bringing people into that dialogue who think that they shouldn't be there. And so for me, whether it's, whether it's around um, decoloniality, theory to practice, I think as academics, that is, that is, you know, if you're going to be, I don't know, critical, decolonial, transformative academic, that is part of your job. You're kind of like a translator, you know? And in a way, I think, and it goes back to maybe the earlier part of our conversation. I don't think academia has any tools for us to do this. I feel like you're sort of just making it up on the fly. You do it out of a sense of commitment. You do it out of a sense of love even, uh, and but also a commitment to want to see the world work differently. But I would also agree that there is no roadmap. I mean, it's interesting, that what you describe about engaging with fan podcasts as, as a sort of a, a learning journey for you. And it suggests, that, again, like your original question, you know, education doesn't just happen in classrooms. And, and not that I'm saying we should make a roadmap. I'm not suddenly saying that we should turn around and try to turn that into expert knowledge, but certainly an acknowledgement that the ways in which we might engage with these different sort, you know, pluriversal arguments or, or, or decoloniality or expanding our views on education. The pathways for that are not linear at all. And I suppose if, if I thought of myself as an activist academic, what I'd want is to be supportive of pluriversal approaches to education where we can acknowledge that learning and engagement and change happens in lots of different ways Uh, through lots of different pathways with lots of different people and maybe in unpredictable ways as well. We've just got to keep making the argument, keep trying to do this. And actually what might come of that, I think, is not predictable. And actually that's okay. We have to learn to live with that little bit of uncertainty. And then, and and Cheyenne's point about, um, you know, it's not I, it's we, that eventually the more people you bring in, the power of that collective, you will eventually, you know, be the change that you want to see.
0: Absolutely. I think that's a fantastic point, what both of you have brought up. And also Lata, what you were saying in terms of how you are now able to engage with more spaces online because of the pandemic. It's the same with me, like I've been able to do that as well. At the same time, I've also been following these conversations on Twitter that you know, disabled academics and academics with caregiving responsibilities have been wanting these spaces for yeah. so much, for so long, and it had been completely Possible to do it as well because the technology was there. The technology has been there, but the will wasn't. Nobody really wanted to do it until there was no other option, and then suddenly, oh right, it's the easiest thing to do to stream these things online and to have it on YouTube and mm. not just make it accessible to fellow academics, but to people who don't have access to academia because that's also a privilege, right? Like getting into a university for whatever reasons. Your, you know, like your money country, whatever, regional origin, like, or uh, other stuff. And the fact that because of these things, you may still want to learn, but you're unable to learn because you don't have the money because you have other responsibilities is such a shame, which is why like, I totally resonate with making academic knowledge more accessible to people, both academics but also more importantly non-academics in a way that also privileges their voices and their experiences as well so it's not just academics talking about this subgroup of people but actually we are that group of people and you know bringing Mm -hmm. that experience together and both of you have very different ways that you've done that either through podcasting or even the blog and viable thinking so did you want to talk about your projects and your work a little bit and how you've tried to make that more accessible
2: so uh, yeah so talking about my project like obviously uh, it's it's not one project i have been engaging in different types of projects but to, in relation to what we have been talking about right now in context to about balancing trying to create a bridge what Lata mentioned parinita you also mentioned between the academic space and the non-academic space the challenges and the possibilities one thing i have been trying to do since last year i used this to podcast as a tool to do that, as you have been doing. And as you have mentioned, again, uh, in alignment with what Parinata just mentioned, that how she has been able to position her understandings with respect to research and many things beyond that, not only just within the constricted academic space, but also outside as well, trying to compare them, balance them. The same thing happened for me because one of the central reasons why I wanted to do a podcast series on everyday decoloniality which actually started with an idea of three podcasts and then it expanded to like 12 to 13 podcasts so the basic idea was actually to bring these ideas of coloniality to the common people and those who may not have read anything about decoloniality who may not be acquainted with the term decoloniality. There can be some people who will just hear the term and will like to know what is decoloniality all about. And that person may not be an academician. That person can be a roadside vendor. What is wrong in that? A person can be a vegetable seller, a hotel person, Once someone goes to the office and works and just someone is driving the car and just wants to listen. What is this buzz everyday decoloniality all about? So my central idea behind that podcast was that. And I started having, you know, researchers. I had academicians. I had activists. I had musicians. I have film actors who just came in and talked from multiple dimensions of decoloniality. Multiple dimensions with respect to race, with respect to classroom, with respect to pedagogies, with respect to performance. Different, different dimensions came into the conversation with respect to music. In fact, I had a very interesting conversation on music with Professor Lewis Gordon. He writes a lot about blues and jazz, and we had a fantastic conversation on that. We had a fantastic conversation on food with Rosina Mart from the UK Zedin. Apart from these academicians, we have several other people who were not exactly like you know seasoned so-called academicians like Professor officers and all they are some researchers some performers and all and the interesting part is let me give you a very and which i actually share with people with extreme happiness and pride my podcast one of the one of the biggest fan of my podcast was my dad actually now the interesting part is obviously it's obviously one side of happiness is my dad but my dad has no connection i mean uh, he has been a nine-to-five banker and he has he has no connection with like he, he likes to read a lot of books. He writes to read a lot of storybooks and newspapers, watches news channels. He analyzes things good. But he has no connection with decoloniality, even with this term, in any ways in his life till date. But he became a fan. And the best part was that he would, every time he would listen to the podcast, he would give his interpretations. He will try to understand. And it really, he was able to, understand the essence of the podcast without me giving any background of that. And I felt that was somewhere, I think a little bit, I succeeded because of individual, I'm forgetting about the part of he's my dad. I'm just taking him as an individual who has no connection with this notion of decoloniality. To any extent could understand the essence of that particular thing and he would ask questions and those questions were literally very critical questions it's not just random questions i did not understand or something like that and then he would also give his analysis with respect to his life experiences which he will start recovering from his childhood which he never did that previously so this is one example apart from that it just touched so many people who have never been associated with this. I have one of my aunts who started listening to it is no, no, no connection with any kind of decoloniality. So somewhere, somewhere. Now I'm not saying I have done a massive job or I have done a revolutionary thing, but We start with drops of water, and we know drops of water makes an ocean. And it gives me a lot of courage to see that somewhere, somewhat, even the common people are not only able to understand the essence of this podcast, but they can also unsettle themselves and self-realize that what they have been engaging with on various dimensions was not actually about their own. It was actually enforced by an external power. So with this example, which also encourages me to, as you said, you also want to do a season two that also encourages me to do a season two as well. So I think somewhere, somewhat, this, this podcasting as a tool and through engaging with ideas which are critical, but at the same time, that also is relatable to any layman who, who has no connection with it. So somewhere, somewhat, I feel that that process of unsettling with the vision of unsettling, which I started with, it has started somewhere.
1: I, I admire Cheyenne for how much he gets done. <laughs> we, can only, we can all only wish to be uh, as productive. And I'm not exactly tech. I was struck actually the other day. In fact, setting up the Zoom meeting is a superb accomplishment for me. <laughs> for all the Zoom meetings I've been doing over the last six months, I only realized two weeks ago that I'd never set one up myself. <laughs>
0: And it's really easy, right? Once you like just sit down and
1: do it, you're like, oh, yeah. It must be reasonably intuitive because I'm not, like I'm comfortable like talking online, talking to you both today, wonderful, fine. But the actual kind of, you know, the nitty gritty of setting it all. So anyway, so the point is, my instinct is not to do this, not because I don't want to, but my I don't have the skills. So like, so to go back to your question. So with my engagement with, with Cheyenne came through Convivial Thinking and I wouldn't want to take any credit for either conceiving of the space or curating it, because I have only been an admiring bystander and just try to be supportive of the principles. But I, I can't claim any sort of um, authorship of design or, or drive because my head doesn't work that way, but I admire it greatly. But having said that, obviously I am in the Convivial Thinking Collective and, and you know, obviously that's how I've gotten to know Cheyenne, which has been just a huge privilege. And, and engaging with people who are motivated that way is also really inspiring for me. Not so inspiring that I feel like I could get my head around web design, right? There are limits, but, but inspiring enough that, you, that it's, it's really easy. My thing is, I, li- I like to think of myself as the marketing. When I was actually going places, I had my pile of convivial thinking postcards and I would sort of chuck them out at people, where, oh, by the way, you know, I support this website. And it's great because I, can, I, can, I find it really easy to promote things that I, I, I admire, and people I admire, that's a lot easier than talking about anything to do with myself. So I, it's really easy to go, oh, well, I, I have all these fantastic colleagues doing this brilliant website, and here, have this postcard. So that's been one element of just trying to get the message out in terms of thinking that there's an alternative space. One of the things that we have talked about, and Shayun and Aftab and Yulia and, and, and I, over, you know, over email, you know, queries will come up about things to do with the website. So the really positive thing about the website is actually the way it was sort of established and, and, and the purpose of establishing it. So it was very much driven by, okay, how do we create a space for alternative, not just alternative knowledges, but alternative expressions of knowledge and debates about alternative expressions of knowledge. This is, so there's all these different things that are similar, not the same, but they're interacting, they, what it is, but how you get it you know how what what is alternative knowledge who gets to decide what alternative or who gets to decide what knowledge is and then what the alternative is the the difficulty of the language so you know as soon as you talk about alternative knowledge well that mainstreams a certain kind of knowledge that's Mm -hmm. the academic knowledge and then you're othering the rest of it so trying to have these debates you know really amazing and again i can't take any credit for the innovation at all but the fact that convivial thinking now has a youtube channel so that, the kind of thing you're saying about the internet creating these opportunities and Cheyenne you're absolutely right you know we so both of you sort of saying things I think they're super important in the sense that there are concerns around digital literacy there's different types of exclusions that we have to be aware of and I think we are but the fact is we can diversify and audiences and reach people that we couldn't reach right and and that's that is that is and and continues to be a motivation and in fact that I met I actually originally was connected to, to Yulia through uh, a, an online conference that I did in 2017, but I outsourced the tech end of it because I, gave, I wasn't going to manage it and I didn't have the license for the software anyway. But it was motivated by similar sorts of concerns. And I think what connected us and why she reached out to me and, and in the way that she's so fantastic at doing and then connected me to Shayun, which is an Aftab, which has been amazing. And why actually, Paranita, when we met on the picket line, you were very much a kindred spirit because it was almost like these constellations of all these wonderful people coming together who have all these, again, different approaches to knowledge building, which I don't have but admire and want to promote. So for me, I, I may, maybe actually what it is, is I'm actually your fans. So I, I, <laughs> I've got my own little like decolonial fandom. You know, I know, I know, I know who I want to promote. So that's very much where I situate myself, you know, with, with some exceptions. I'm not, you know, I've written the odd blog here and there and I I try to support where I can, but I'm, I'm, I'm very much the fan or the admirer as opposed to the curator of content. (laughs) Um, And and I, and I think that's great, you know, and in a way, I think it's a wonderful position to be in, as I said, because I think it's also about, even in my positionality as an academic, you know, I quite like taking the time to reflect and to use that 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 position, which I think is an incredibly privileged to actually reflect on what I don't know and the messages that I can promote that aren't mine. Like that's actually a really nice thing. I don't actually like talking about myself. What's the fun in that? Whereas I can talk about all these other people that I know or people doing fantastic work. Let's talk about that. That's really great. Um, but we did this We did this online conference and similar sorts of issues would come up and we did it as a text-based thing. So you post stuff. But one of the things even in 2017, before we had a pandemic and this became a necessity, was again to try to reach people that might not be able to travel, might not be able to get a visa. So these debates are happening and you're always trying to, you know, either curate or involve yourself, trying to build more dynamic spaces to include more more people. But there are limitations. And I think that's the thing with convivial thinking. We're always trying to overcome and try to be more nuanced in that. So obviously, there's the actual thing about exc- inclusion and exclusion around digital literacies. Have I even got an internet connection? So we're not going to get to everybody. And I think mm-hmm. upfront, we get that. Then there's those layers that you're trying to unpack that I think start to make the project in a way more important and also more interesting and more of a challenge because some things you simply cannot overcome the most immediate one that we talk about quite often is obviously the absolute hegemony of the english language right so we've had a colleague in in leeds for instance who we, who wanted to write in a kind of mixture of spanish and english and we're like yeah totally go for that please do that would be wonderful because that's how she wanted to express herself and we're like yes that sounds wonderful so she did and that was amazing uh laura so she did that and it was wonderful, but it's a limitation, right? It's still text. So this podcast again offers a counterpoint to that. That's wonderful. But again, is there bandwidth to, to run audio files? So there's other sorts of things that might come out of that, you know, but things like say performance, poetry, photography, video images. I mean, there are still barriers. And then we have to be mindful of the fact that we are still creating different types of inclusions and exclusions. But I would say overall that it, it shouldn't still stop us from exploring the al- both alternative knowledges or, or different knowledges or pluriversal knowledges, but also pluriversal approaches to, to knowledge building. So it shouldn't be a limitation, but actually being involved with convivial thinking, to sort of go back to your original question, Paranita, is that in a way that in itself has been hugely enriching, because without the engagement with With whether it was the online conference early on, where you're having to actively confront it, but now with convivial thinking in very much a support role, still a fantastic education. For me, the challenge has been, how do I take that learning around inclusion, exclusion, the new dynamics that emerge, and then try to apply that in my own academic spaces in the conversations that we've been having about, you know, how do we include more people or more views? And rehearsing that in a way has been hugely valuable because I think I am now thinking about things that if I hadn't been involved with convivial thinking, wouldn't have even occurred to me. So that, again, selfishly, maybe it's been hugely valuable, that engagement. And so this kind of conversation even today, you know, what a great learning opportunity, you know, again, selfishly for me.
0: No, but that's brilliant. And that's something that you said, Shan, as well about it being collaborative. For me, that's one thing that I sort of had a hint about when I started my like launched my project properly in January. But now I'm even more determined about this, that knowledge is so much more enriched when it's co-created through dialogue, because you don't know what you don't know. And you only learn these things when you're talking to people, like, you know, the blind spots that you have, you don't even know they're blind spots. And obviously, it's like a lifelong process of unlearning and relearning, and you know, like identifying first of all that social conditioning and then uh, undoing that. But, uh, so Shan, you said something about like uh, I, you used the term common people, which I thought was really interesting because I very much see myself as common people, I don't see myself as an academic. I don't know if that's the raging imposter syndrome, I'm sure it is. Uh, because before I did my master's, even I worked, I'm a children's book writer, so I work with children's books and young people. So In different ways, like I've worked in a school, I've done activities, I've done in bookshop. So for me, that was my engagement with knowledge as an adult, newish adult in the beginning, which is making kids excited about books because they were so important to me when I was growing up but I had to trick them into like especially the ones who were more reluctant who didn't already think books were awesome I had to trick them to making it more fun so I used to design these activities and have conversations and try and like I did this reading program in a school which was largely first generation English speakers so for them how to make them connect to this book that or this picture book that I'm reading that's set in France maybe or the U.S. or the U.K. Mm-hmm. or whatever India as well different parts of India like I used to do this thing where I used to start off with asking a question that was sort of related to the book but asking them what like what was your favorite breakfast for example or something like mm-hmm. that like they had to buy into the book because first they like and you know draw connections from their own life mm-hmm. so and I've done other sorts of activities as well in school and outside in bookshops and literature festivals so when I came into academia then like you were saying, Lata, theory is important. But for me, theory is important in the lived experience of people yes. rather than in like Absolutely. just reading about it. So I've like seen this and like I am reading about this in academia, but I'm always drawing connections to my really? experiences and, you know, through secondhand experiences as well, uh, which is why in the podcast, like maybe like that's why I wanted to not just privilege my own voice because i'm not comfortable privileging my own voice because i don't think i know too much like i know children's books but i don't know so much so it's like you said selfishly it's me trying to learn through other people's perspective so i have obviously these ideas and theories like i have some level of knowledge but it is a very incomplete knowledge which other people help fill in, especially people who come from different like backgrounds. So intersectionality, I think it um, includes decolonization as well. It has its roots in black feminism in the US. Yeah. So originally it looked at class and race and gender and sexuality, how they intersect and affect black women's lives in the US. But now in academia and for me, online discussions have expanded it to look at other identities as well. So we are looking, we are talking about it in terms of how we're both privileged and marginalized like you know you're both even when you're marginalized in spaces you still have other levels of privilege and they are also very contextual like my identity in India is very different from my identity as like a brown immigrant in the UK for example Mm -hmm. so we've been talking about all these things and for like I'm cisgender I'm heterosexual so for me those are blind spots as well and disabilities like I don't have any disability like no identified disabilities so you know like talking to people about their experiences is so much for me more valuable than just uh, reading is important as well like obviously I read theory and academia and like things but they're living in it their practice is informing the theory almost which yeah for me is hugely valuable. And uh, what you were saying, Lata, about the like the exclusions and inclusions in digital literacy as well. I find that really fascinating because I've learned so much just by making a podcast. I'd never made a podcast before I jumped off like, you know, the deep end of the pool, like, oh, yeah, I'll do this for my PhD. And I've just learned so much I've been a very online person since I was 16. I think like I've just like grown up online, so I'm comfortable with like online things. I like learning new things, but I think everybody has more than they n- give themselves credit for. Like you, for you, it was so e- like once you actually sat down to do Zoom, it was easy enough for you. So I'm sure you have more skills than you think you do. Like just mm-hmm. when you were saying about After that. All that. <laughs> <laughs> like, when you were just saying about it in terms of digital exclusion and inclusion, I think there's more nuance to that as well. Because just in a previous podcast episode for my podcast, we were talking about this newspaper called Khabar Lahariya, which is mm-hmm. in, like, it's a rural newspaper yeah. in India. Mm-hmm. I, like, I don't know if how much you know about it, but it was started by this woman to look at local news and rural yeah. news. And she, like, had women as journalists and as distributors. And after a few years, they have transitioned online. So this, like, their news is now on Facebook, through WhatsApp, through Telegram, I think, what you were saying, Cheyenne, uh, earlier about the app. And, you know, they've done it so much better than a lot of bigger newspapers have managed to do. And, like, you know, they're so with it. I think that disrupts the notions as well. Maybe Mm -hmm. not of people who know about it, but people like even in India, Indian cities, for example, like, oh, these rural women are, you know, doing all this and like, oh, we didn't know phones, like what? Digital literacy. So I think that's really interesting in terms of your own experiences, in terms of literacy. I think we have time for one more question. Have you engaged with multiple kinds of literacies or multiple kinds of Knowledges is as well, like just while doing these things that we've been talking about?
2: Well, multiple forms of literacies. Now, this perspective makes me think that what are the various ways that we gain knowledge? And this process of gaining knowledge to my best, I try to be conscious to understand it away from that capitalistic concept of knowledge production. So I, when I say gain knowledge, I don't mean that knowledge production thing. So I'm keeping that aside. And obviously, because when I engage, if I again go back to the, my individualistic as well as collective practices of what I engage with everyday decolonial thinking and doing, I feel that what I read in the text and what I do in the context, somewhere, somewhat, I always try to relate that. So for instance, when I am... Eating a particular food item, to be very simple and a straightforward example, when I'm eating a particular food item, I am getting my certain tastes in my tongue for sure and whether I'm liking or disliking the food. But it's much beyond that. I am gaining a form of cultural knowledge, even in my process of disliking that. Even if I'm disliking that, but still I am gaining a kind of cultural knowledge, I'm gaining a kind of social knowledge, a racial knowledge, a geographical knowledge, and varieties and various dimensions of knowledge. So for me, that context is the text for me at that time. If I'm wearing a particular dress, on a particular occasion. Now, for instance, there are various ways of drinking alcohol in Bhutan, which is actually absolutely very interesting. You don't drink the same kind of alcohol in all the occasions. Hmm. So for example, and the interesting part is they drink alcohol in every occasion. So if you compare it with the Western concept that, okay, to be very specific about the colonial West, alcohol is an element of celebration. Some will interpret alcohol as an element of violence. But here, alcohol underlies every aspect. So if there is a birth, for example, when a child is born, the ritual is that the mother will take a clean cloth, will rub a bit of alcohol on the cloth, and will rub it on the lip of the child. That's a ritual. And that alcohol will have a very, very, very low alcoholic content, actually, so that it doesn't harm the health of the child. It's a ritual. Then the alcohol that is taken... In the time of, for example, a big Buddhist festival, is not going to be the same alcohol that is going to be consumed at the time of a marriage or at the time of someone's death. So, you see, the, the point is just with drinking different types of alcohol, the typical notion before coming here, the typical vision, the typical notion that I had, or those set of notions about consumption of local alcohols or foreign liquors or whatever completely transformed here. So it is also a form of literacy for me. This alcohol is a form of language for me. This alcohol is a form of pedagogy for me. The drinking process sitting in that collective cultural space is a pedagogy for me. So through these examples, through these experiences of the daily life, I try to position this notion of literacy, or if I put it as collective
1: literacy, through these daily
2: life experiences.
1: Yeah, that's actually that's really, without wanting to um, make it sound too much like a pun, Shane, That's given me food for thought, and I do mean that in, it, genuinely because I think, you know, in answer to your question about you know engaging with different knowledges, I would say the I suppose my immediate response to that is no because I live I, I am who I am and live where I live and so my starting point is that I don't know stuff and so I have to work really hard to keep finding out both stuff both the things I don't know and the ways in which I don't know them but in a way that that's actually quite liberating so I think you know if we go back to the original sort of thing about academic framings there's lots of pressure to be an expert and know everything I actually find it quite nice to be able to you know sort of start off by acknowledging, well, actually, I actually only know this much about this much. (laughs) I know this tiny little slice, and even then I'm not going to claim that I know everything about this tiny little slice of stuff that's happening here in this little part of the world where these sets of ideas interact. And I know some aspect of that. Because my starting point is, I don't know things, or I know things the way I know them, but I would never ever want to assert that it's the only way. Actually, that's a really productive place to start without wanting to sound too kind of commodified. But it's a very productive place to start because what that allows me to do is to say, okay, how do I challenge myself? So I know it this way. So this could be food cultures, it could be language, it could be ritual It could be pedagogy in the classroom, it could be how I interact with my children, it could be watching the news, whatever, Twitter, whatever, right? But if my starting point is, okay, this is what I think I know, and then something comes along, then it's actually really nice, because my my first question is, okay, well, what do I learn from this? And is there a way for me to think about whether there's another way to approach this issue or question? So if I try to get outside of my own head or if I put aside what I think I know about this, what might that what might that teach me about how somebody else might be experiencing that? So Pranita, you know, your point about oh, being heterosexual in a heteronormative world and, and not have a disability. So this particular positionality that you hold interacting with people and actually that revealing life worlds that you don't have access to doesn't mean that you can't have solidarity, that you can't learn, and that we can't build collective wisdom or action, right? It's actually really liberating because if my starting point is I don't know, well, then every interaction is a learning opportunity. And that's brilliant because, and I don't mean that in a kind of I figured it out. I'll show you, you know, the language of unsettling. It's perfect. You're constantly unsettling yourself. I think in a way, the most successful academics are the ones that just think, you know, I am fantastic. And I know all of these things. They're the most successful ones. I'm not interested in that only because for me personally, I mean, I can imagine that might be fulfilling in its own way, right? You get promotion, you gain a platform, notoriety, money, whatever. and And there may be something to that. But I think collectively, what what it feels like we've expressed is that we are all aiming for something bigger, right? There is actually something else that has to come out of all of this, which isn't even in itself an end or an outcome, but trying to embed different types of processes, validating different, you know, pluriversal experiences and knowledges that might actually reshape the world. Because ultimately I think all of us are kind of expressing a discomfort about the determinism of the world that we live in. That doesn't even mean that we share the same vision, but actually that discomfort I think is good. That's important because I don't know, who would want to live in exactly the same world? That's a bit, that's a bit boring, right? The question is how do we all work towards that collectively, but still embrace the fact that we might all want different things out of that? What does that process look like? Embracing that uncertainty, allowing yourself to be unsettled is the first step, but actually, having done it, I feel hugely liberated because then I don't have to have all the answers. Well, that's great. <laughs> you know, and then my job becomes something else. I say this to my students all the time. It's like, I've got the best job in the world. You know, I get paid to think. Yeah. I get paid to learn, you know, don't tell my employers, but I might do it for free, right? <laughs> but actually when I approach it like that, it is fantastic, but it, it is often unsettling, right? Because sometimes we do want answers or answers are being demanded of us. That you're talking about imposter syndrome. I mean, that, there is an element of that, right? We are put in that position because we're supposed to know stuff. So then, when I don't have an answer, your instinct is to go, "Oh my God, I don't really belong here." <laughs> but it's actually about living with that, with the sense of discomfort and being unsettled. And I'm and I think you're absolutely right, which is that you then want to be able to radiate that outwards. How do we unsettle? But not in ways that are meant to be about, you know, attacking or or distrust. It's about actually trying to understand what the purpose of that unsettling. Why would I want to unsettle? It's not because I want to upset you or because you know, I'm trying to make you feel bad or because I think everything is horrible or anything like that. The unsettling is about, well, hang on a second. If I just step back and take a different perspective on this or I look at this ritual or that food or you know, this custom or this language or, or this geographical place, what if I shifted the lens a little bit like this? Or I described it in this way. Is it possible that we can learn something? Is it possible that we would be better off for it somehow? That we might actually, you know, create a different... The possibilities of that are so exciting that the discomfort and the unsettling is worth it for me. But for me, it's very much about a learning process. And living with that is a challenge, but it's hugely rewarding. So the answer to your question short answer is no I don't have <laughs> but I want more so I'll just keep looking for it
0: <laughs> I love that this conversation was so you know brain set a buzz and brain set a light because sometimes it feels like it feels very isolating because not everyone in within academia even seems to want to question these things or seems to want to know about these things or is interested or whatever so it's nice to talk to people who do think about these things and
2: who are doing things somewhere somewhat i feel because uh, title of this Umbrella podcast is fandom. And I think we also, through these interactions, we create a mutual fandom that dissects from the usual dimension of hero worship. We don't create pedestals, we are breaking pedestals and we are basically acknowledging each other, critiquing each other, trying to understand each other's differences. I remember I re- once read an article by this, by obviously a very famous, we all know his name, um, Portuguese thinker, uh, Boaventura Ventura de Sousa Santos. And he talks about this concept of depolarized pluralities. That is, we don't know, not only we require a form of plurality but it should be depolarized so I think this this very podcast interaction made me feel in the in the, in the the same manner that it's not necessary we are all agreeing with each other, we critiqued each other, we acknowledged each other, we appreciated each other, but also this consistent process brought so many new thoughts and dimensions to engage with in the future. And which I think is the most important thing. It's not about shutting down and getting the record and sharing on the Facebook and WhatsApp. Yeah, that's obviously we need to do that. We need to spread that. But what after that? And that opens up the gateways for more interactions, more weavings in the future. And for that, personally, I really thank Parinita for inviting me, inviting us and creating this us thing all together today. And I'm really fascinated by this all together, whatever. We oh,
0: it to- was totally Lata. Lata is the one who's helped poke me when I fell into my PhD research pandemic hole. And no, uh, it, it was definitely Lata. I'm I'm so glad as well, Lata, that you brought us together. This is such a good conversation. Just, I think more than ever now, I feel like after talking to everybody here as well, that. I wish academia did more to talk to people who are not academics, you know, and not just like even in spaces like this, like in convivial thinking or like a podcast or just within academia in a classroom or whatever, just because, or talk to the students in a way that's not talking to them, but talking with them and having them contribute their knowledge and intelligence, which will again disrupt your own thinking because you don't know. And that's good pedagogy, right? Coming, that's what we do in primary schools. I mean, not in my school we had like 67 children in a (laughs) classroom so but like in other schools which have like more room and resources to do this you come together and you share knowledge and you have the skills that you exchange and learn from each other like why don't we do that in higher education why is it that the older that you get you're like oh no there's only this one or two people who know and even in terms of research you know not just researching a group of people but Having them a part of the design as well, not just like, you know, you're going in there as a researcher and then going away, like you were saying, Shan, like just going away and doing this, uh, like, you know, put and then sharing the research in the academic version of Facebook and WhatsApp, which is journal articles that are very expensive to access, but just creating this knowledge with the people and then also sharing it in a way that make sense to them and that's relevant to them so yeah that was apparently a very long final thought that I had but thank you so much this is fantastic this is a great conversation
1: no thank you thank you for bringing us uh, together actually which has been fantastic. And I'm glad we
2: got the to work. Absolutely,
1: yeah, and it's been so nice to talk to you both today. Really, really. It's,
2: it was fantastic interacting. I thoroughly enjoyed and learned and so many things to talk about again. That makes me so happy, actually.
0: Yeah. We need to have a second part of this episode. <laughs> sure, <time>. why not? <laughs> Maybe sure, in the most pandemic was. Thanks so much for listening. As both Lata and Shayan brought up throughout the episode, creating knowledge is such a collaborative effort and I absolutely have to agree. I learned so much from our conversation which I am so excited to incorporate into my own work and thinking. Thank you both for taking the time to do this and for being so patient throughout this episode's long journey out into the world. And thank you Jack for finding the time to edit this episode.